You and everybody listen to these words from Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Remember that part. I am with you always, even to the close of the age. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Samuel, Jesus Christ has chosen you, and in baptism joined you to himself. He called you together with us into the church, which is his body. Now he has brought you to this time and place, so that you may confess his name before others and go out and serve him as his faithful disciple. Please show your purpose by answering these questions. You ready? All right. Trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? What do you think? Yes? Nod? Yeah? All right. We're good. All right. Who's your, who is your Lord and Savior? This one's Jesus. Yep. Good. Do you trust him? Yes. yes. Do you intend to be his disciple, obey his word, and show his love? Yes. yes. Will you be a faithful member of this congregation, giving yourself in every way, and will you seek the fellowship of the church wherever you may be? What do you think? Is that a yes? Yes. yes. All right, we got through those parts. Congregation, you have a part. Would you stand, please? Do you, as members of the church of Jesus Christ, promise to guide and nurture Samuel by word and deed, with love and prayer, encouraging him to know and follow Christ and to be a faithful member of his church? If so, say, we do. Our Lord Jesus Christ ordered us to teach those who are baptized to observe all that he has commanded us. Do you, the people of the church, promise to tell Samuel the good news of the gospel and to help him Know all that Christ commands, and by your fellowship to strengthen his family ties with the household of God. If so, say, we do. Now let's confess our common faith, which Samuel is being baptized into, using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, congregation, you may be seated. All right, Samuel, you just heard all that. Do you want to be baptized? Yes. All right, then let me pray over this water. We give you thanks, eternal God, for you nourish and sustain all living things by the gift of water. In the beginning of time, your spirit moved over the water, calling forth order and life. In the time of Noah, you destroyed evil by the waters of the flood, giving righteousness a new beginning. You led Israel out of slavery 
through the waters of the sea into the freedom of the promised land. In the waters of the Jordan, Jesus was baptized, something we remembered this Sunday, by John, and anointed with your spirit. By the baptism of his own death and resurrection, Christ set us free from sin and death and opened the way to eternal life. We thank you, O God, for the water of baptism. For in it we are buried with Christ in his death. From it we are raised to share in his resurrection. Through it we are reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. Send your spirit to move over this water, that it may be a fountain of deliverance and rebirth. Wash away the sin of all who are cleansed by it. Raise them to new life and graft them to the body of Christ. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, that they may have power to do your will and to continue forever in the risen life of Christ. To you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore, be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. All right, Samuel, you ready? You think you can kneel? All right, let's try kneeling. Samuel, what's your full Christian name? Samuel Thomas Custer, on behalf of the whole Church of Jesus, I now baptize you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And may the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you all your days and give you a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and the spirit of joy in your presence, both now and forever. Rise, Samuel. You know what? Samuel's just been received into the one holy Catholic apostolic church through the sacrament of baptism. God has made him a member of the household of God to share with us in the priesthood of Christ. Let's welcome the newly baptized. All right, let's come this way for a second. Come this way for a second. We're going to stand right in the middle. We're going to stand right in the middle. Kids, we love it when you are in worship. But in a second, we're going to do something, and during that something, if you want, up through second grade, we have children's church. Uh, and you can go to that. But right now I need the congregation to stand. And we get to do something we don't do very often, but it's kind of fun that we get to do it again, and I think it's very appropriate to baptism. I'm going to say some words, and you're going to say something back, and then you get to go say them to each other. You ready? The peace of Christ be with you. Wish Christ peace upon one another. All right, we can come back together. We can come back together. We just sang about how the goodness of God is running after us, and I think, I think we just saw that. And we just got to experience it, and we got to 
wish Christ peace on one another. And what frames all of this is God's Word. He puts it all together. And so I think it's time to turn to God's Word now. So if you would, open your Bibles, your pew Bibles, your Bible apps, and turn to John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. We are in a sermon series walking through the Gospel of John, and we're asking of each successive passage what it tells us about who Jesus is and what that means for us. Uh, and today we get to a passage that we don't usually read this time of year. We, we get to a passage that is usually... Uh, on Palm Sunday. It's a passage describing Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just a week or so before his death. Easter is not until April 9, uh, so April 2nd is when we traditionally would preach this, but I'm really glad that I get to preach it today because we get to preach it from a somewhat different angle. And as we dig into this passage, I think we're going to see a few things about Jesus and a few things that we're called to do as a result. We're going to see that Jesus is misunderstood, but, but that he does everything to clarify that misunderstanding. He does everything to fulfill the scriptures, uh, and because of that, we can trust him. And we can trust what he says is coming for the future, too. And we're going to see that he is amazingly humble, and we're going to be called to that same kind of humility. And we're going to see that he is about getting the whole world to follow him, and we get to be part of inviting that world to do that. There's a lot, so let me pray before I read or preach. Lord, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Give us minds to comprehend and hearts to believe all that you have for us in this reading and preaching of your word. Nourish us that we might know who you are and live accordingly. Do this and do more, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Listen for God's holy word to you. The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. So let me, let me give you a little context. In, in John chapter 11, Jesus does what many consider to be his most remarkable 
sign. He, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus had been in the tomb for weeks, or not weeks, for days. For four days he had been in the tomb. And lots of people saw Jesus do this, and as a result, lots of people are starting to believe in Jesus. Uh, and unfortunately, it's not everybody is starting to believe in Jesus. And it's precisely because lots of people are, but some aren't. The some who aren't have a council together, and they go, Jesus has to die. Jesus does have to die, but it's not time yet. So Jesus, toward the end of John 11, heads out of town for a little while. But now the time is close, because it's the Passover. And Jesus, along with lots of other people, heads to Jerusalem. It's estimated that on an annual basis about two million people would show up for Passover because it was expected that you would celebrate the Passover, if at all possible, in Jerusalem at the temple. And you would come early. You would come early because you had to uh, allow for some difficulties in travel uh, when you're going by horse or foot uh, over long distance. You had to allow for some margin of error, and you would come early because you had to do some things to get ceremonially clean when you got to Jerusalem so that you could actually celebrate the Passover. Thus, Jesus, uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, shows up about a week before Passover, about a week before his crucifixion, because his hour is now at hand, uh, and he shows up at Bethany. Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, just kind of a suburb. And, and uh, when he gets there, a banquet is held in his honor. We looked at that last week. Uh, Paul did an amazing job, Paul Seddon did an amazing job of walking us through this banquet that was held in Jesus' honor. And it's a banquet that we looked at from five different perspectives, but it's a banquet where Mary of Bethany anoints Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, where where Judas says, hey, wouldn't it have been better to have sold that and given it to the poor? Which he says really because he intended to steal some of it. But where most importantly, Jesus says, hey, this was done in advance of my burial. Jesus announces that he's going to die. The stage is very much set. And our text starts by saying the next day. The next day is what we call Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Passover. It's the Sunday before Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. And Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, and there is a response to this. And the response is quite interesting. The response is that there is a huge crowd comes out to see him. And on their way in to see him coming, they gather palm branches. And I need you to notice a couple of things here. I need you to notice, first of all, that it's a huge crowd. It's not just his disciples. Because the population had grown to a couple of million, it's possible that there were tens of thousands of people coming out to see Jesus. He was a celebrity. This was a big deal. And they had expectations. And we see those expectations in the fact that they bring out palms. Now this might not seem 
normal to all of you, but in those days you need to understand that a palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It would be like bringing a don't tread on me flag to an event. Uh, the, the palm branch was so significant in this way that when the Jews uh, had rebellions, two different times, they had enough of a rebellion and enough of a time during those rebellions to create their own currency. And do you know what their currency was stamped with? The image of a palm branch. That tells you what the crowd is expecting of Jesus. But so does what they say. Uh, what they say is, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. And there are two things about what they say that I need you to notice. Uh, uh, the first is, is the word Hosanna. And the word Hosanna, we think of as a generalized shout of praise, but in, in, in reality, if you were to translate the word Hosanna, it means, oh please, come save us now. Save now, for shorthand. That, that, that's what it means. Now, the words Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord come straight from Psalm 118. And they were traditionally said by everybody to everybody who was coming for the Passover. So, so everybody would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They'd say that to you as you were coming into town. They'd say it to everybody, but when you add palm branches and tens of thousands of people, Hosanna reverts from being a generalized cry of praise back to being a prayer request. Save us now. And this is reinforced by the words, blessed is the king of Israel. Because if you go back to Psalm 118, you can look and you'll see the words Hosanna, and you'll see the words, blessed is he who comes in the name of Israel, but you won't see the words, blessed is the king of Israel. It's an addition to the text, which can be dangerous, but as we'll see soon, can also be intentional. Uh, and, and you take this combination of crowd and palm branch and Hosanna and the addition of blessed is the king of Israel, and what you see is there is this understanding that Jesus is coming to drive out Rome by military force. That's what everybody thinks Jesus is doing. That's what they think, and they are all on board. They are asking him to do this. They are expecting him to do this. Now, there's a lot of irony in here. I, I don't know if you're, if you're cluing in to the irony. The, the irony is they're saying, please save us. <laughs> and that's exactly what Jesus is going to do, just not in the way that they expect. And... and there's irony in saying that blessed is the king of Israel, because Jesus is the king of Israel, but he's also the king of kings and lord of lords. And there's irony in the fact that, that it's Jesus' not fulfilling in the way that they wanted that will lead this crowd to later say, crucify him, crucify him and for Jesus to, in fact, save them and demonstrate that he's king of the world. 
The people don't understand who Jesus is and what he's about. They want him to be a political, military king. He wants to save from sin and show that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus doesn't give up on this crowd. Uh, Jesus does something about this. And what Jesus does about this is he goes and he gets a young donkey and he rides on it. Now, you need to stop and picture this for just a moment. And you need to notice something. You need to notice, first of all, that what Jesus does is responsive. Right? What comes first? The crowd comes first. The palms come first. The shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. All that comes first, and it's when that happens that Jesus goes and gets a donkey. And it says very intentionally, he gets a young donkey, and it's very symbolic, and it's trying to communicate something. And you just need to think about this. A young donkey in that day and age would have been quite small. Jesus would have had to bend his legs to keep them from dragging on the ground as he came in on this donkey. He would have looked somewhat ridiculous. But he wants to look this way, and he wants to look this way very, very intentionally so that he can communicate something. He's, he wants to communicate humility. He wants to communicate gentleness. He wants to communicate that I'm coming in peace. Because if he had came on a horse... Everybody would have gone, oh yeah, you're exactly what we expected, exactly what we wanted. You're here to kill the Romans and set up a different kind of kingdom for us. But by coming on a donkey and looking ridiculous, Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm here gently. I'm here humbly. I'm here to serve. I'm here to save. Yes, I'm the king, but not the kind of king that you expect. But that's not the only reason Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, is it? Jesus also comes riding in a donkey to fulfill Scripture. Uh, go look again at what Billy read for us, that Zechariah 9 passage, and look particularly at verse 9, because this is what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, you would think that everybody would know that obscure passage, right? Everybody would have paid attention. You all have that one memorized a long time ago, and you, you are just like every Jew back in that day. No! Pay attention to what the text tells us. Not everybody knew that passage. And it says his disciples didn't know that passage. There in John 12 it says, they, they, they didn't remember that passage until after Jesus was glorified, meaning after he was resurrected. So at the time of Jesus riding on a donkey, we, we like to assume, oh, everybody knew he was doing this in fulfillment of prophecy. The text is telling us very clearly, no, they didn't. They had to figure it out later. They had to go back and do Bible study of the Old Testament to see how Jesus is fulfilling everything and how all these things had to happen to him. And that all these things had been written to him. And that's telling you something very important about the Old Testament. It's telling you that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. 
And it's telling you that Jesus lived in a way to fulfill everything that was written about him. Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is not bound, but he chose to bind himself to what is said in the Old Testament. And he lives and dies in a way to fulfill what was written. And we saw that big time, right? Just now in Christmas a couple of weeks ago. Christmas actually just ended on Friday, if you're paying attention. There were 12 days of Christmas. I don't know if you all got your, direct, your, your decorations up through at least that point. But, but, but what, what, why did Jesus have to be born in Bethlehem? Why did he have to be born... Why did he have to be born of a virgin? Why did he have to be of the line of David? Because all of that was prophesied about him. Today on the church calendar is baptism of the Lord Sunday, and... And it's good to remember that Jesus was baptized and that John the Baptist came and John the Baptist framed his own ministry in terms of preparing the way for the Lord because that's what had been prophesied about him. It's good to remember, and we saw this earlier in our study of John, that Jesus intentionally healed a lame man, a paralyzed man. That Jesus intentionally gave sight to a blind man because that had been prophesied about the coming Messiah. That Jesus proclaimed good news to the poor, not going to the elite, because that had been prophesied about him. And now Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 because that had been prophesied about him. And just following this text, Jesus is going to suffer and die in some very specific ways because that's what had been prophesied about him. And if, if you ever want to just be remarkable... Go read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, and then go read one of the accounts of Jesus' passion. And you'll go, oh, I get it. He did it all these ways. He suffered this way because that had been what was prophesied. Jesus will soon rise from the dead because that's what's been prophesied about him. And Jesus does all this, A, to help us know what the purpose of the Old Testament is, The purpose of the Old Testament is to show us our need for God and the promise that God is coming. So there are some very dark parts of the Old Testament. Some of you are like, oh, I don't like those parts. Read them this way. It shows that we need God. And then read the rest of it and go, oh, God is coming. But when you see how Jesus fulfills all these prophecies, it should give you reason to believe in him. And it should give you reason to trust him and acknowledge the truth that what he says in the New Testament will also be fulfilled. And one of the things Jesus says in the New Testament over and over again, something you just professed in the Apostles' Creed when we said it together, is that he is coming again to judge in the quick and the dead. And we need to be ready for that. It's going to come like a thief in the night, but we're told over and over again, get ready. And you can count on the fact that Jesus is coming back because he came in the first place in fulfillment of prophecy. He's going to come again in fulfillment of of prophecy. That's why this was written, so that you can believe. Now, I want to go down one little tangent. I want to dig into one little nuance here for a second. I want you to look at John 12, 15 for a moment. And if you look at John 12, 15, you see that it looks like it says, as it was written, you know, see your king Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. And you go, okay, yeah, that must be just a verse in the Old Testament. 
But go back now and look at Zechariah 9.9, and you're going to notice something if you're paying close attention. In Zechariah 9.9, the words, do not be afraid, are not there. So John 12.15 is actually a mass, uh, a mash-up quotation. It's quoting partly Zechariah 9.9, but it's also quoting what is said lots of times in the Old Testament, do not be afraid. Now, I, I think the Holy Spirit inspired this, and he inspired this for two particular reasons. And, and the first reason is, is to tell us how we should read the Bible, which is we should read it holistically, not proof-texting it. We, we don't need to go to just one text or here or there text. We need to see that the whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And including verses that you might not think are about Jesus. Verses like where God appears to somebody and the first words out of God's mouth are the words, do not be afraid. Which gets me to my second point about all of this. Again, multiple times in the Old Testament, God appears. And every time God appears, the first words out of his mouth or his angel's mouth are, do not be afraid. Why, why do you think that is? Well, because God coming is actually pretty scary. It's very appropriate to be scared of God because we are sinners and he is righteous and, Yeah. God doesn't want us to be afraid. I mean, yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is an appropriate kind of fear. But this terror at God's coming, this hiding from God when he's seeking us in the garden, that's not what he wants. What God wants is a relationship with us. And so God makes himself approachable. God makes himself humble. God makes himself in a way that you're not afraid anymore. I half-jokingly said this the other day. Uh, you know, they, they say that if you want to pick up a girl, uh, go to the park with either a baby or a puppy. Right? Because babies and puppies are so approachable. Why does Jesus come as a baby? Because he wants to be so approachable. He doesn't want you to be afraid. And he reiterates that now by coming on a young donkey into Jerusalem. The humility of God is astonishing. Uh, we, we heard about that in our call to worship, right? That God humbled himself and took on flesh. That, that, that he didn't just take on flesh, that he, he was crucified for us. And that he came to serve and to save us. He did all that so that we could come to him, that we could get to him, that we could be relational with him. And he also did that to set us an example. The text, if you go back to that call to worship from Philippians 2, says, in your attitude, in your mindset with one another and with others, 
you should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So you should have the same attitude of humility, of approachability, of being gentle, of wanting to get to Christ that way. Not to stand up and lord it over people, to go, oh, I'm the one who knows Jesus, you don't, you fool. No, you're supposed to be approachable to him. You're supposed to serve. You're supposed to be humble. You're supposed to be gentle. And you go, yeah, 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 I get it. It's easier said than done. Because it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Some of you are tracking. But actually, that, that paves the way really easily for, for, for what humility is, right? C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less often. Jesus didn't think less of himself. He knew he was God Almighty, but he didn't put his emphasis on thinking about himself. He put his emphasis on thinking about you. And how many of you teach your kids others before self? You can do that. You can think of others before you think of yourself. You can do that in your speech. You can listen before you decide to talk. You can do that in your actions. You can serve rather than looking to be served. Humility is something that we can learn. It's something that we can emulate. And we're supposed to be humble. We're supposed to come in peace. But here's just a warning for you. A predicted warning. You can come humble. You can come gently. You can come looking to serve. And you can still be rejected. Jesus says that, that if they rejected him, if they persecuted him, you can expect them to do the same to you. And we see that in this text, right? Jesus comes humbly. He comes gently. He does everything to fulfill Scripture and to communicate a different message. And what happens? The same people who shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel, many of them are going to turn and shout and say, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we get a foreshadow of that. The, the cross is looming large over the triumphal entry. And you see the Pharisees getting really upset and turning to each other, and they're blaming each other and saying, look, the whole world, this is getting us nowhere, the whole world is coming after him. And don't miss the irony of that. Right? Don't miss the irony of what was just said there, because this is just like what was said at the end of chapter 11, where Caiaphas stood up and said, said, don't you know anything? It's better for one man to die than the people. And indeed, that's true. Jesus died for all the people. It was a prophecy. This is a prophecy, too. Because, and it's an ironic prophecy because, well, yes, there was a large crowd. It was an entirely Jewish crowd. It wasn't the whole world coming after him. But now, now, now look. More people follow Jesus than anybody else. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be part of helping more and more people follow Jesus than anything or anyone else until we get to that day foretold in Revelation 7 where a multitude beyond number from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will gather around the throne and say salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And notice they say lamb, not lion. 
Because God is still staying humble and approachable, even in glory. Friends, Jesus was misunderstood on Palm Sunday, but you don't have to misunderstand him. He is humble. He is gentle. And he serves and he saves and he wants to do that with you. He wants you to be in that multitude beyond number. Saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. All right. I want to show you some humble leaders. So if our new officers would come forward, we're going to move into ordination and installation at this time. So go ahead, new officers, new elders, new deacons, come up here and stand up here and uh, face the congregation. I listed you all alphabetically, but, but uh, I don't expect you to line up that way. We'll make it work. And a couple of these new officers, because the health issues are um, uh, joining us online, but they are still part of this service, and just wanted you to know that. So today we get to ordain and install our new officers, and I do mean we. Yes, even as these new officers have made commitments to the Lord and to you, we're going to ask you to make some related commitments. The new officers are Lyle Jacobson, raise your hand, Lyle, Rachel Lim, Bill Saunders, Jeff Staple, uh, uh, Robin Kesey, I had it alphabetized, somehow I missed that. Those are the elders. Amy Birdsong, Cheryl Castle, Anne DePoy, who's online, Nita Lord, and Sarah Price are deacons. These officers were elected by you in August and went through a training developed by our denomination, ECO, called the Ten Core Competencies of a Leader. They also dug into who we are and where we're going as a church. In December, they were examined by session and they each presented a statement of faith and were confirmed in their calling. Today, we're going to finish the process and formally ordain and install them to their offices. Listen to these words from Scripture. There are a variety of gifts, but it's the same Spirit who gives them. There are different ways of serving God, but it's the same Lord who is served. God works through each person in a unique way, but it's God's purpose that is accomplished. To each is given a gift of the Spirit to be used for the common good. Together we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are called into the church of Jesus Christ by baptism. We saw that earlier. And we're marked as Christ's own by the Holy Spirit. This is our common calling, to be disciples and servants of our servant Lord. With the community of the church, some are called to particular service as deacons, as elders, and as ministers of word and sacrament. Ordination is Christ's gift to the church, assuring that his ministry continues among us, providing for ministries of caring and compassion in the world, ordering the governance of the church, and preaching the word and administering the sacraments. Representing the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the session of this church now ordains Rachel and Phil to the office of elder, and Amy, Cheryl, Anne, Nita, and Sarah to the offices of deacon. We also install Lyle, Robin, and Jeff, who have been previously ordained as elders. Ordination calls the whole church to be renewed, to renewed commitments, and reminds us to gladly 
bear the yoke of Christ given in the covenant of baptism. So officers, would you show your intent by answering these questions? Go ahead and keep facing them, because they need to see you making these commitments. Do you believe in one God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And do you boldly declare Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, acknowledging him Lord of all and head of the church? Guys, follow Robin's example. He was loud. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the word of God and inspired by the Holy Spirit, the unique witness to Jesus Christ and the authority for Christian faith and life? If so, say, I do. Will you receive, adopt, and be bound by the essential tenets of ECO as reliable expositions of what scripture teaches us to do and to believe, and will you be guided by them in your ministry and life? If so, say, I will. Relying on the Holy Spirit, do you humbly submit to God's call on your life, committing yourself to God's mission and fulfilling your ministry and obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture and guided by our confessions? If so, say, I do. Will you be governed by Eco's polity and discipline? And will you be accountable to your fellow elders, deacons, and pastors as you lead? If so, say, I will. Do you promise to be faithful in maintaining the truth of the gospel? and the peace, unity, and purity of the church? If so, say, I do. Will you pray for and seek to serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? If so, say, I will. Now, to those of you being ordained and installed as elders, will you be a faithful elder, watching over the people in their worship, nurture, and service to God? If so, say, I will. And to those of you being ordained and installed as deacons, will you be a faithful deacon, serving the people, urging concern, and directing the people's help to those in need. If so, say, I will. Congregation, will you please stand? Let's make these commitments to these new officers. Do we, the covenant partners of this congregation, accept these elders and deacons chosen by God through the voice of this congregation to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ according to the word of God and the constitution of of ego. If so, say, we do. Do we agree to pray for them, to encourage them, to respect their decisions, and to follow as they guide us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church? If so, say, we do. The congregation may be seated, but if you've been ordained as an officer at some point in the past, a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, why don't you come forward for the laying on of hands? Now you guys turn around and face the cross. Get close together, because this is going to be laying on of hands, and we want to get lots of hands on you. Let's pray. Eternal God, we give you thanks for your steadfast faithfulness to us. In every age, you have called forth leaders to serve you, and equipped them with your gifts. Among your people, Israel, you anointed prophets, priests, and rulers. You called pastors and teachers, bishops, elders, and deacons to build up your church. With Moses, the 70 elders bore the burden of your people, ministering in the power of your spirit. Alongside the apostles, deacons cared for all in need and guarded the community's peace. In the church, deacons, elders, and pastors served together so that your whole people might be equipped for ministry and built up 
and to the full unity of Christ. For your servants in every age, O God, and for the church of Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise. God of grace, pour out your Holy Spirit on Amy, Cheryl, Anne, Nita, and Sarah. They may be your faithful deacons in the church. Give them openness to the Holy Spirit's leading, that they may see and serve wherever there is need. Train them in the school of prayer, that they may express the compassion of Christ for the poor and the friendless, the sick and the grieving and the troubled. Equip them with courage to bear the gospel into the halls of power and to communicate your presence and might among those who are powerless. And everything, give them the mind of Christ, who did not grasp at greatness, but emptied himself and became a servant of your reign. Give them joy in their walk of faith and a sure sense of your abiding presence for their work of ministry. God of grace, may you also pour out your Holy Spirit on Lyle, Robin, Rachel, Phil, and Jeff, that they may be your faithful elders in the church. Give them prudence and sound judgment, wisdom and courage to order the life of the church in obedience to your word. Nourish them in the Holy Spirit, that they may exercise the ministry of discipline with humility and compassion. Guide them in governance on this session and in every court of the church, that they may be servant leaders following Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for many. Lord, give them joy in their walk of faith and a sure sense of your abiding presence for the work of ministry. Gracious God, through the waters of baptism, you have called and claimed us as your own and called us to share in Christ's ministry. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we together may discern your gifts that you have given, calling them forth from one another, and together use these gifts for the good of all. In obedience to Christ and in the unity of the Spirit, may we proclaim good news, make disciples, be light and leaven, share our bread, offer a cup of cold water, wash one another's feet, make us strong in Christ to live as your people and to show forth your saving love to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.